ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Craig Hamilton will be a name familiar to many people who listen to the wireless. Craig has been with ABC Sport for decades and he recently stepped down as a much-loved radio presenter with ABC Newcastle. Craig Hamilton came to the wireless literally blinking in the sunlight. He'd been working for years as a coal miner deep underground where everything is blacker than black and where you're always casting a nervous glance at the roof of the tunnel. It wouldn't be true to say that being a radio host and a sports broadcaster was Craig's dream job because Craig never really dreamed such a thing was even possible for him. He loved the work. But then a few cracks appeared in the roof of his own mind. During the 2000 Sydney Olympics, Craig had a very public breakdown on a train station platform, which sent him in a whole new direction that was as unexpected as his radio career. Craig's story is now at the centre of a new documentary called The Promise. Hello, Craig. Hi, Richard. Your story starts in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Tell me about the farm you grew up on. Well, it was a small farm. It was only about 50 acres in in those days. We we used to call it acres. It was flat. The soil quality was very good. It was rich river flats. It was a dairy farm. So, you know, Dad was milking cows. Not many. It was only about 30 cows. And I sometimes look back on those days. It was a great experience growing up in those, you know, because we had plenty of room to play cricket. We had plenty of room to play rugby league. You know, Dad made a cricket pitch, which was almost, and then we had a field almost the full size of a cricket field, and the mates would come out and we'd play on that. And we'd have a footy ground, which was basically the size of a full footy ground. But then I'd milk the cows and help Dad, um, as my brother did too, and it was a great life. And, and it's like any childhood, though. You don't know anything different. So it's normal. Was your dad that kind of classic man on the land on horseback? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, had a horse, rode a horse. He would work the cattle on whilst riding a horse, and he'd always have a dog, always had border collie dogs. But there were times when uh, I think round about the time he would having a few too many beers. So instead of driving the car into <laughs> Singleton, because we're on the edge of Singleton, instead of driving the car into Singleton to go to the pub and have a few beers or drive the tractor, which he did as well, sometimes drive the tractor on the highway into Singleton to have a few beers, he'd ride the horse. And this, you know, you look back, that's an extraordinary thing to do. Can you get pinged being DUI on horseback? I wonder in this country, or no one would bother to do that, I suppose. I I would imagine not. I've I've never heard of anyone who's gone DUI on a horse. (laughs) So it was a good place for a sporty kid. You mentioned you helped Dad with the milking. What, What did that mean for you getting up in the morning, Craig? Well, I wanted to be a part of it from an early age. So I can remember probably from the age of eight or 10 years of age, saying to dad, make sure you wake me up in the morning. And this is school days. Make sure you wake me up in the morning because I want to come down and help you milk the cows. My God, you were keen. Well, I was. And, you know, I thought 
back as to why I did that, whether it was that connection with dad. I just wanted to do whatever dad was doing. And the way to do that was to go down and milk the cows. See, that sounds vaguely romantic to me, Craig, but what's the reality of getting up at 4am to milk the cows? Well, it wasn't much fun uh, because you'd, you'd remember that the night before you'd said, wake me up, wake me up. And when dad would actually do what you'd ask him to do and wake you up, you go, oh my God, it's early. But then you'd get out and you'd, you'd go milk the cows. But many times he just let me sleep, you know, he'd let me sleep in. And how were the cows? Did you cop a few kicks from them over the years? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That was one of the occupational hazards because there were some cows, and you got to know them in the in the herd, which were more aggressive than others. And you knew that you had a chance to get kicked by one or two um, that were in that herd. So you had to leg rope them. That's one of the first things that I uh, learnt. You put the cows in the bale, right? And then you put a chain around them at the back so they don't come out backwards. But then to prevent you uh, from getting, prevent yourself from getting kicked, you get a leg rope, just a bit of rope, tie it around the the leg of the cow, uh, below the knee, pull it back into position, tie a knot around it. So this restricted the cow's capacity to kick you. Cows, of course don't discreetly duck into the ladies when they need to go to the toilet. Was this an occupational hazard for you at times, Craig? Very much so. Very much so. Anyone who's milked a cow, particularly (laughs) in summer, it was worse because, you know, without putting too fine a point of it, uh, cows shit and they shit in the bales when they're getting milked. and With enormous force sometimes as well. With enormous force. And so you're milking the cow... And you end up with this all over the tail of the cow. Now, if it's summertime, there's a lot of flies. Mm -hmm. And so out of the cows, get rid of the flies. They, you know, swap them away with the the tail. So if you're sitting there, you're going to cop that across the face and that happened more than once. All before you start school of a morning. Mm. How about your mum? What was her story? Well, mum came out from the UK as a, basically as a 10 pound pom um, in the, would have been the early 60s. She came out with a good friend of hers um, named Cecily and she had both done nursing in, in the UK. Mum ended up working at, at Singleton Hospital and Cecily, her friend, worked there for a while as well. But then she went to Brisbane and met her future husband. Mum stayed in Singleton and met Dad in Singleton. Was she ever cut out to be a, a farmer's, uh, to live on the land, to be live the farming life herself? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances was Mum cut out to be a farmer's she, wife. She hadn't grown up on on a farm in, in the UK? No. Had Absol- no experience of farm life until then? No. Oh, dear. No. No. It would have been very tough, very tough, because... Um, yeah, mum had no interest in being on the farm, no interest in milking cows. But then by the same token, she had her hands full with with kids and trying to bring us up, which would have been problematic in itself. What sort of a kid were you, Craig? Oh, probably there was no such thing as ADHD when I went to school, but 
knowing what we know now, I think I'd get a, I think I'd get a diagnosis pretty quickly because I was always one of those kids who was disruptive, always one of those kids who was talking, and didn't have a great deal of interest in the subject matter, in the classroom, and so that ticks a few boxes. Yeah, there's also the thing I remember talking to a country teacher once who said it's hard to teach. Sometimes it's hard to teach the boys in particular in the country because they're always looking out the window wondering what dad and their older brothers are doing. Was that you as well? I think I spent a bit of time looking out the window because looking out the window I found was more interesting than what was going on in the classroom. And there was also the practical joke side of it as well. And I used to do a lot of that just to entertain myself and to entertain others in the class. I, I would have been a nightmare to teach. So you're this wriggly, hyperactive kid. Were mm. you expected, though, to take over the farm one day? Well, there would have been an expectation, certainly, because that's the way it worked, you know. Um, granddad has the farm, passes the farm on to Dad. Dad, pays, pay, you know, passes on the farm to the kids and so on and so forth. But certainly the expectation was there. But by the time I'd reached my mid-teens, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Why? I didn't Why? Well, because I could see how hard Dad worked. I saw how hard he worked. There's no one I've met in my life, Richard, who had a better work ethic than my father. Never saw him have a sick day. And he would, he'd get up and go milk the cows, uh, regardless of how unwell he was. Everyone gets sick. And he injured himself a few times. He fell off the horse a few times. He was kicked himself in the uh, in the bales, milking the cow. He had physical injuries. He tore a tore a muscle off. His, he had a torn groin muscle at one stage. We had to get a neighbour to come and help milk the cows. We were there as kids. Dad could hardly do anything, but he was still there. So you just saw a life of hard work, stress, and injury then. And I saw a a job where you never had a weekend off and you never had a holiday. And I decided I didn't want that. But you didn't know what you wanted to do, but just not that? Is mm. that what it was? Yep. So where did that leave you? Where did you go to from there? Well, halfway through year 12, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. Not a clue. And there was some jobs advertised on the notice board at school. And they were for, the jobs were for cadet coal miners or cadet underground miners, the BHP collieries in Newcastle, which was the west side of um, Newcastle. At that stage, BHP had five underground mines. I thought, well, there's a job I could apply for. I have no idea what I'm getting into, but I applied, got an interview, got a job, and was told that I had the job two days after I sat the English exam in my HSC. And so from that point on, the HSC uh, didn't take precedence. It was right. a case it was of, irrelevant, right. It was irrelevant, yeah. as were my marks. What did your parents think of you saying, I'm going underground, I'm not going to be on the land, I'll, I'll go underground? I'm sure Dad was disappointed, but he never said he was. And I think Mum would have been horrified that I was going underground, even though she didn't ever, she, she never said that. But I, I would imagine that um, mum would not have liked that idea at all. 
See, to me, Craig, the whole idea of going underground and working in a mine seems vaguely science fiction-like to me. It's almost like going to the moon to work, mm. like to go that far underground. I think I'd have trouble getting in that mine for, in the first place. So I'd get a little bit of claustrophobia and going that far underground and spending your working days under there. But you're in a community in the Hunter where it's the normal thing to do to go down and work in a mine. Tell me about your first day on the job when you went down into that mine. Well, fortunately, I wasn't claustrophobic because what you say is, is, is absolutely correct. If you are claustrophobic, suffer from claustrophobia, you will not work in an underground yeah. mine. So I didn't have any of those fears. So I'm not even 18 years of age. I'm 17 and a bit, 17 turning 18 about three weeks later. And I'm underground for the first time. And I had uh, there was two other guys with me. We started exactly the same time, same day. We didn't know each other at all. We are great mates today. Still stay in touch. And we were all together. And the under-manager in charge, which is effectively the manager of the underground part of the mine, he delegates the jobs in the morning right? You're on day shift. And he basically looks at the three of us and says, uh, this is where you're working today. You need a sledgehammer each and you're going to knock down a stopping, a brick stopping. So it's effectively a three-tier brick wall. So how do you get down into the pit of this mine? Two ways. There's um, a drift and that basically, to paint a bit of a picture here, if you've been to the Blue Mountains and you've seen the, the scenic railway, which is more of a terror ride, I think, than a scenic <laughs> railway, but the, it's like that, only not that steep. It's more of a gradual grade down to the, the seam. And the other way is, is a straight um, cage, a straight, basically an elevator, which takes you from the, the surface down to the the pit bottom, which was from memory about 300 metres. Right. So that's not a very long ride then. 300, well, no, 300 metres is a way. Is it? So that's what, like five metres, uh, five minutes, 10 minutes in a cage going down, is it? Um, it would be. Mm. Yeah. This is a while ago, yeah. but I'm thinking, I'm thinking about maybe five minutes. What does the air feel like when you get down there? It's cool. It's cool because the mine where I started was a wet mine. So there's a lot of water that leaked through the strata. And so when you've got, particularly in winter, if you've got, you know, cold conditions on the surface of the mine and you've got water in the mine, which is seeping out of the strata, and then you've got powerful ventilation fans. And that's how it's, you know, it's dragged in, sucked into the mine and then basically blown out right, the so other side. All, so you've got all this evaporation happening now and this like nat- air conditioning yeah, effectively, right? Ex- yeah, that's what, exactly what it is, it's like air conditioning. The further you go out, though, into the different roadways as the mine is developed, the hotter it becomes because it becomes harder to to ventilate the mine, much harder, and it's less wet. You've got less water. So it, it, we worked in some some pretty hot conditions. So this, you, you and you, these other two newbies, mates, mates of yours, are given this job to knock down a wall effectively with sledgehammers. How was the work? Hard. Um, it was the very physical because you're, you're swinging, it must have been a seven pound or a 10 pound hammer. And the, the brick wall wasn't moving much. 
you know, there was not a lot of give in it. So we had to, and because it was our first day, we wanted to make an impression. You know, this is our job. We're going to get stuck into this. And so we we just threw ourselves into it. Half and half the day, half the shift had gone. We all had blisters. So, we, you know, it was just, um, but yeah, it was, it was hard physical work and a great introduction to underground mining. Meanwhile, this is around about 1980 now. This is when you clapped eyes on your wife, Louise, for the first time. Tell me about that. We've heard about um, a thing called Love at First Sight. And this was as good an example, I think, as uh, that as possible. She was training with a touch football side. So it was a number of her girlfriends and they were all on the same touch football side at Howe Park in Singleton, which is the main rugby league, main cricket ground. And I'd been down at the cricket nets with a good friend of mine and because we used to we used to go and have a practice session every now and again to improve, but it'd be just the two of us. So we're walking out from the nets and we walk past the cricket ground. And so the girls are training probably 60 metres away, maybe 50 metres away, and I saw Louise for the first time. And so I'd never seen her, never had any discussion, never uttered a word. And I just turned to my mate that day and I said, I could marry that girl. What did your mate say? I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember. Maybe it was a case of wake up to yourself or, (laughs) yeah, yeah, of course you, of course you could. You don't even know her. And then we just moved on. And, And did she ever catch sight of you? Do you think you made a similar impression on her? No. 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 Because our next... The next time we crossed paths was I was playing cricket in one of the local teams in Singleton and her father, Pat, was the captain. So Louise used to come to the cricket and she would do a lot of the scoring for the cricket and she used to confuse me with someone else. (laughs) In the team. So, it, so no, you've got I a real problem on your hands here then because cause if you get mm. the love at first sight thunderbolt, mm. it's a frightening moment because it's very real. It's very shocking. And you think, oh, I, I really have to do something about this now. I, I have to, I, I can't let this thing go because it's, you, re, you actually realise you're in quite a state of danger there at that point uh, because you, you, you know what's happened to you and, and she's mistaking you for someone else. What, what were you able to do about that thing, Frank? Well, thankfully, I had a number of other people who were close to the the cricket club, like other players, their wives, their girlfriends, who could see something, you know. They could see something that I think Louise had not seen. I was aware of it, but I still remember. It was like a matchmaking to the nth degree. We were having a drink, as you did after the cricket, down at our local pub, the Royal Hotel, sponsored the cricket, sponsored our team in in Singleton. We're out in the beer garden and having a, a drink and the next thing we know, everybody has bolted. They've gone. They've left us, turned it's a around. a conspiracy. Oh, total conspiracy. And there's just the two of us sitting there. So we had no choice to have that first conversation. Yeah. And you were, what, 18? And she was, what, 16 or something? 
No, I must have been 17. And you're still and together Louise after was, all these years. Louise was 16. And yeah. you're still together after, after all these years. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Meanwhile, you're still working away in the mines there. Hmm. Are there moments when you're underground, I have to ask this, where you looked up, looked at the ceiling of the, the mine tunnel and thought, hmm, that's not looking good? Yeah, a number of times. Yeah, that, that happened. Look, I was mining for 16 years so I think when you're in an underground situation, you're going to face those things. I mean, there's a lot of jobs that are risky. There's a lot of jobs inherently dangerous. And thankfully, the underground industry today is far safer than it was even when I was, was mining. But yeah, there were plenty of times when we'd work in areas underground and I'd look at the conditions carefully and think, this is not great. Did you share those thoughts with your workmates? Look, we we would share the thoughts with each other, but only to a point. There was there was this understanding, or there was this. We talk about camaraderie in underground mining, but we also talk about the macho culture and the blue collar, tough guy attitude. And you've got to be resilient. You've got to be tough. You've got to have that to to be underground. But there was also this, I think sometimes there was a collective fear of some of the situations you found yourself working in and no one was game to be the first one to say, I don't think we should be in here. So Craig, how did you make your first step away from being a coal miner? Well, not so much away from being a coal miner, but towards the radio. Sliding doors moment. I was playing cricket, Marnica Oval in Canberra, number one ground, beautiful ground, and I was playing for Newcastle, and it was a representative match against the ACT against Canberra. Our team's batting, the Canberra boys are bowling, local radio station, one of the commercial radio stations are broadcasting the game. One of the, I think the producer comes up to our team who are batting and said, look, we, we need one of you guys to come on, do a bit of colour commentary. And they said, well, look, you, my teammates said, look, you never shut up. We're sick of your, uh, we're sick of your cricket commentator impersonations. Just here's your chance. Just go down there. So I went down and I think I was on for 25 minutes or, or 30 minutes. I loved it from the first word I spoke. Did you feel comfortable straight away? Straight away. Straight away. I knew what I was talking about because it was cricket. And I could, I had those communication skills. And so I loved it and I could do it. And that's where the seed was sown. Were you shocked by how much fun it was? Yeah, I was actually. I was. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't, which is interesting. I wasn't nervous. I just, I, I was, the inquiring mind kicked in. I thought, I wonder what this is going to be like. And sat down and I thought, this is pretty good. How then did you begin to start taking up space in ABC Newcastle after that? Well, someone was listening, or there was a couple of people in Newcastle, I think it was team managers were listening. They had the radio on. And I think the story goes that one of them said, this guy's not bad. He could be a good publicity officer for the local cricket competition. And so 
I ended up doing five-minute spots with all the local radio stations. I talked to the local media, the newspaper, some of the television stations. But I also had a five-minute spot on the ABC on a Saturday morning on the sports panel. And that's where it started. And then it sort of snowballed from there. You know, basically, Richard, what happened, there were opportunities that came up and every single one of them was taken so you're going down to ABC Sydney to down down the road to do spots there. How are you juggling working the mines between and working at the ABC? Well, by that stage, after a few years later, you know, we went through a different um, the whole range of different opportunities that were taken along the way from around the grounds reporter to sideline eye, and then to calling games. And Peter Longman obviously saw something. Peter was the head of sport at the ABC at the time and, and Peter Wilkins was another and Wilco gave me a start on the call and then the rest is history. Podcast. Broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. And what kind of a decision was it to leave the mines for good? A difficult one, but one that had to be made. I thought, you know, if you're going to chase your dream here, I didn't want to be in the mines for another 10 years. I asked myself that question. I still remember where I was sitting. Do you want to be here in 10 years? The answer was no. So I left. So you left. But that must have been a hard decision financially for you. Well, well, it was a risk. I had three kids, all under 10, and a mortgage. So, yeah, it wasn't full-time work I was going to. I was going to part-time work. So, 1999, Craig, is when you got a job as a full-time presenter and as the radio uh, presenter on Saturdays on ABC Newcastle. How much of a relief was it to have a full-time job in radio? Oh, it was fantastic. I was so excited. I was so excited. And what it did, it took the the pressure off the the family in terms of having a steady income having a secure job rather than what I'd been doing for the two years straight after leaving the mine which was to work freelance you know I emceed events I hosted trivia nights I wrote in newspapers, sport reports, when the the regular reporters would have holidays. So I just scratched around. I had $15,000 a year worth of work with the ABC, which by that stage I was doing the uh, a Saturday morning breakfast show and driving to Sydney to do the, still doing the sideline commentary. So, you know, patched together, I think made $40,000 each of those years. So it took the pressure off, but it also... It also vindicated for me the decision to leave. It takes that pressure off, but it puts a whole other bit of pressure on you, particularly when you work for the ABC. It's not like commercial radio where you can substitute facts for opinion, if you like. You know, you've really got to be on the wall. There's no big, long ad breaks to prepare. You're on the air a lot. You feel very much in the public spotlight. You have this great sense of obligation to your your local community. Were you feeling the pressure there? No, not at all, because I was ready to do it. I'd, I'd, I'd done my apprenticeship. I'd done my apprenticeship on air. I'd done my apprenticeship, uh, you know, as a sideline eye. I'd I'd been a broadcaster and called the play-by-play. So I was ready to do it. So I had a great belief in 
my own ability. And I don't say, say that in an egotistical way. I just knew I could do it. And you can't so, do the job without that conviction. And no. You probably shouldn't either for that matter. And you're doing sport at the time. This is in Newcastle at the time. This is like, what, two years after Newcastle, the Newcastle Knights had won the, what was then still, I think, the ARL uh, Premiership and mm. uh, thereby putting Super League to the sword at the same time. And I, I think Newcastle was in a state of continual ecstasy as a result of that grand final win for a good five years after the fact. It was a good time to be a sportscaster in Newcastle, I would have thought. It was the best time. Mm-hmm. It was the best time. You couldn't write a better script or set up a better set of circumstances than Newcastle winning the grand final in 1997, they were rank underdogs. Manly, the team they beat, the Knights beat in 1997, had had beaten the Knights 11 games straight in their previous 11 matches. So rank underdogs, they win and the drama surrounding the way they won. So they weren't in front in the game at any stage. They were behind at every, from the first minute of the game through to the 80th minute, Manly were in front until when it really counted, which was the 80th minute. And um, so I, I was on the sideline that day and I will never forget Darren Albert scoring the match-winning try after Andrew Johns initially went the blind side and then turned Darren Albert back inside and just about everybody, I can't think of anybody other than Andrew Johns, who at that time thought it was the right decision to run the blind side. They've all gone, he's blown it. He's absolutely blown this by doing that, making that play. But Andrew thought it was the right play and he he made the right call 99.9% of the time. And all of these stoic Newcastle types you've been talking about only just cracked right open emotionally at that point, I think. So then we move on to 99, like I said, though, two years afterwards. When did you notice that there was something there that wasn't quite right with your state of mind, Craig? Well, with the benefit of hindsight, I was high or manic for much of 1999. I think there was, yeah, there was an element of the excitement of the job, but there's also, at that stage, undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So there's, you know, these mood swings, highs and lows. So I'm feeling fantastic in 1999. When I begin to notice that there are some cracks is the early part of 2000, the did next year. You, and did you mention this to anyone? No. No, I didn't. Because the, the symptoms at the time were moderate. They were moderate. What, depressions, like periods of depression, that sort of thing? Um, Well, I didn't know what depression was really early. I knew I wasn't sleeping properly. I wasn't eating properly. I couldn't concentrate on things. I was finding just basic concentration difficult. This is when doing this job becomes very, very hard if if you go through that. Absolutely. You really have to hold a whole lot of stuff in your head and uh, and and be quite relaxed and had a good night's sleep beforehand. Yeah, exactly. And so and it was very difficult. I was constantly stressed. I had huge anxiety, which across the period of January, February, March, April, May, just got worse. It got worse. The symptoms became more acute and I told nobody because I'm an Australian bloke. And we, we don't talk about those things. You know, I was embarrassed about the way I felt. And so therefore I wanted to deal with it myself. And, you know, 20 odd years later is the worst thing I could have done. 
but it was the only way I knew how to deal with it at that time. Notwithstanding what you said about your conviction that you were in the right place at the right time, it's almost a universal syndrome. Anyone who's presenting in the media, whether it's radio or TV, that you do get a bit of imposter syndrome, particularly when you're successful at it. You, after, you, you do sometimes ask yourself, who am I to be doing this? Who am I? I mean, I, I'm going to be caught out on Sunday here. Someone's going to find out and someone's going to walk into the room and say, all right, you fooled everyone this far. We found you out. Go on, on your, on, on your bike. Go on, off you go, off you go. Did you have any of that? So uh, found out that, hey, I admit it, I am actually the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's all just a big scam. <laughs> no, not really, because I didn't ever try to be something that I wasn't from day one. I never tried, and I think you would know you've done a million radio shows, the moment you try to make out you're something you're not, you're inauthentic, yeah. and it just comes out straight out of the, the, the speakers when people are listening. One of the first bits of advice I had when I came into radio, and the manager's name will remain, he'll remain unnamed, said, we've got to do something with your voice. You don't sound like an ABC broadcaster. You sound like a coal miner. And so, oh. therefore, we've got to do something with that. And I My remember... My dropped right here. Well, it's an amazing thing to say. Well, I, I said, and it was very early in the piece, I just said, look, this is who I am. This is how I speak. And I, I'm not going to change that. And so you and I are just going to have to agree to disagree. It's a way not, a great many of your listeners speak as well, just yeah. quietly. So so that's all good. That's all to the, the greater good. But then we get to the Sydney 2000 Olympics and, my God, you've been chosen as part of the broadcasting team for the ABC. What a, what a fabulous thing. What a great career hire that's going to be. What did that mean for you to be chosen to be part of that team? Well, it was a career highlight to be selected. And if you'd said to the kid who was... 11 years old, on the dairy farm in Singleton, milking cows, that one day you are going to, you know, you're going to be broadcasting for the ABC on the Sydney Olympic Games. I just, you couldn't make it up. You couldn't dream that. Yet it was, well, I was on the cusp of achieving that. Yeah. But your state of mind wasn't good, as you said. Mm. No. And then came that afternoon in September 2000, and you were about to get your, a train to the Olympic Stadium. What do you remember of that day, Craig? I probably remember far more about that day than I should, given that I was tipping into a psychotic episode. I was in, the, I was in a, a psychosis. I was experiencing psychosis. So. How, did, how did that come upon you? Well, gradually, and then it, it happened quickly because... The depression that I'd described before took about seven or eight months. Um, and then finally I got some help, saw a doctor, was prescribed some antidepressants and said, take these. And they worked after about five weeks. But with someone with bipolar disorder, antidepressants can actually ignite a high. And that's exactly what happened. Five weeks later, I'm manic. And a few days after that, I'm psychotic. And no one knows, least of all me, I'm on the train station and the I remember becoming verbally aggressive for no reason. It was like a light bulb going off or being turned on. And Aggressive to who? Complete strangers? Oh, complete strangers. I was just 
it, and it was all verbal. I mean, it was just, I remember storming up and down the platform and just hurling abuse. And if you do that and your behaviour is like that, you're quickly going to draw attention to yourself. And um, the mental health crisis team was, was called. I was told that later. But they didn't come because when, when they heard it was described to them, well, they said, well, what's happening? Why, why do we need to get involved here? They said, well, we've got a, a bloke here who's in his late 30s. He'd, he'd probably weigh about 85 kilograms. He's in an agitated state and he's verbally aggressive. And they said, well, we can't handle that. Call the police. And so the police arrived and not too far after that. And I must say they did a brilliant job, absolutely first-class job. Number one, because they'd done it a hundred times before, I wasn't the first person in the grip of psychosis to be assisted from a critical situation by the police. So they knew what to do very calmly, very professionally, got me across. I ended up handcuffed because I did put up a, I put up a struggle because I just didn't want to go in the back of the the police van because I hadn't done anything wrong, you know. So you, you think this sense of injustice, why am I going in here? I'm off to the Olympics and... With that, that's not who I am. I'm not that guy that gets in the back of a police van. No, mm. no. And then 15 minutes later, after a 15, most horrific, terrifying 15-minute ride that I've ever had in my life, I was, um, I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. What was your state of mind once you'd, I presume you were given a sedative once you got there and once you had that, uh, once you came out of that, what was your state of mind? Could you make sense of what was going on around you? Well, I was still very belligerent when I first got there. When I first emerged from the back of the paddy wagon, I can remember that because there was a number of the staff there who were observing me just to see, right, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? We need to try and put some pieces of the jigsaw together here. But yeah, after, I think after about 15 minutes of that, I remember being put on a table and jeans were pulled down and I got a pretty decent size needle in the backside, a sedative. So that was three, about 3.30 in the afternoon. And I can remember waking up at about 11 that night. Did you have any understanding of what was going on? No. No, didn't have a clue. How did things progress from there? Did your family come in? Yeah, well, they'd been in. They they were there pretty much as I was being admitted. And thankfully, I had a, I had a good friend on the train station that day, just by pure coincidence. So he could actually say, look, this is not the guy that I know, because we'd known each other for 20 years. So I had someone in my corner on the train station. So he arrives, the boss from work arrives, my family arrives. And so then the backstory gets put together, you know, very depressed, put on antidepressants, hasn't slept really for two weeks, you know, quite manic in behaviour. Now he's had an episode on a train station and within two or three minutes they say, well, he's got bipolar. He's bipolar one. He's out of psychosis. So you finally got the correct diagnosis? Very early on. It didn't take the the psychiatrists very long at all. They didn't have to sit down and, and 
and think about it for too long to realise what this was. Now, how did you reckon with that diagnosis? Well, for the first three months, I didn't believe it. I, you know, I was in total denial that that's could be me. I, I would be saying, I haven't got a mental illness. This oh, you, you're a guy who gets up at 4am to milk the cows and can work down a mine and cope with all the stress and tension of that. You can host on-air sports. Uh, you can do all these things. Mm. So that's not you, you told yourself. No, that's right. Mental illness, my view was mental illness happened to other people and to other families, not to me. What did you have to do to accept the diagnosis? Um, it was difficult. And from memory... I think the fact that I kept going back because I was required to keep going back to see the government psychiatrist before I'd be allowed back to work, because even though I felt great, because I was still high, I was still quite manic, you know, and they bring you down from a psychosis back to a level of mania on the way down to just levelling you out to where you should be. I was feeling fantastic. Let me back to work. I can't wait to come back to work. And they're saying, you're not ready to come back to work. So it was across that period of time that I thought, maybe I'm not. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. So you had to swallow a fair bit of ego to mm, accept that then. Absolutely, yeah. So did you learn to manage it a bit better? I mean, obviously with some medication, but was there – are you using like cognitive behavioural therapy or something like that to recognise when you're about to enter a new phase? And, and can you do that now? Interestingly – Cognitive behavioural therapy was something I didn't enjoy or I couldn't concentrate on. I tried counselling. I had some psych, uh, some sessions with a psychologist. For me, what worked and continues to work is medication and educating myself, which I did from day one. I've, I've got to know more about this. I have to read about this. I have to read other people's stories. I have to find out how other people cope, their strategies, the tools they use to stay well. And then all sorts of books on, you know, I read some books on spirituality. I read some self-help. I read just about everything going and took a little bit out of all those places to learn how to recover and heal which is what I had to do. And it took a year at least to get over that episode. And then it was a case of the rebuild. Are you getting better at figuring out when things are not going well for you and just to take it a bit easier, leave off a bit and try and remove yourself from stressful situations? Yeah, I am a lot better, but it's taken a long time for that to happen. I now know when I'm getting tired and I feel a bit rough around the edges. And that's when I know I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable when that happens, when I don't sleep properly. I know if I have a really disrupted sleep, I've, you know, straight away I go, Craig, you're vulnerable. Pull back on your commitments. Make sure you get a good night's sleep the next night. And the medication's critical. It's still, for anyone with bipolar 1 disorder, the medication is critical, but there wouldn't be one person who has bipolar 1 disorder who hasn't stopped taking their medication at some stage, and I did that, and it was a mistake. When did you decide to start talking about what you'd been through? Probably three years after the episode, and the only reason I, I did decide to speak about it was because I'd got angry at that time, not because I'd missed the Olympic Games, I was well past that, I, I was cranky 
because there wasn't a lot of intellectual property around. There weren't a lot of stories. There wasn't much conversation. It was still very taboo. And I thought at the time, you got a choice here. You can either be part of the solution or you can be part of the problem. And the problem was always the silence and the fact that conversations weren't being had. We just didn't talk about it. It was all too hard. And so I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going down the other road. I want to be part of the solution. You'd been on air. You'd been broadcasting from things like the 97 grand final victory. And people who are in your community would associate you as this guy they've had a really good time with in the past. What was the reaction from the public when you started giving public addresses on this subject? Um... Oh, look, I think I can remember the first few that I did. And bear in mind, the first few that I did were very difficult for me because you're standing up, you're literally bearing your soul. And my public speaking was okay, but it wasn't polished to the point where I could do a 45-minute or a, a one-hour keynote. What I sensed from just about every audience was a real – they were uncomfortable – why? 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 Oh, the subject matter. The subject matter made them feel uncomfortable because I was talking about the depths of depression and the signs and symptoms of the depths of depression. I was talking about suicidal thinking, which is where I was when I was depressed. I had suicidal thoughts. Then you move on to, oh, then I, I had some medication. I had some antidepressants. So then I went manic. Oh, then I became psychotic and was delusional. Then I had a wrestle with the police. Then I was put in a psychiatric hospital. Then I talked about what it was like in the psychiatric hospital. They're not easy things to for people to listen to without feeling uncomfortable. It's part of that because just about everyone someone in their family or their extended circle of friends who has uh, mental illnesses of some kind or another and they, they might have recognised something in their own lives from this. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's um, very likely. I think that's spot on, actually. When did that shocked reaction start to change? And have you noticed a change with talking about this subject? Oh, definitely. Illnesses? I've been speaking now for 20 years. So it's been, and I've been speaking more, more regularly, for 20 years. And I think with just the sheer numbers of people who are reaching out for help now, just the numbers of, you know, there will be nine suicides on average in Australia today, nine. The suicide rate in Australia is more than double the road toll every year. So we're talking not, uh, we're not talking about a small problem. Those numbers don't include those who attempt suicide and don't uh, and survive, and it doesn't include those who contemplate suicide, never act on it, they think about it. Those numbers aren't included either. So, you know, you can draw a... I think you can safely say that these issues impact on far more people than we would ever imagine. Maybe this is a really stupid question, but you are an advocate for encouraging people to talk more about mm. their experiences of these these conditions. Why, why is that a good idea, to talk about it? Well, it's a good idea to... And, and here's the difference. This is... Not everyone is going to do what I do. And, and I get that, and I think that's, you know, it's each to their own. The important thing in t- talking about it is to make sure someone else knows. Someone else needs to know if you are in 
a suicidal state because there have been so many family members, there have been so many people who've been lost to suicide who have never had that conversation. No one knows. But they take their lives and then the family and the friends and the work colleagues end up at the funeral and they go, well, gee, I didn't ever see any signs of depression. I didn't know they had a problem. This is a complete shock, which it is. However, if people feel more comfortable, say, yeah, I'm struggling at the moment and I'd like you to know about it and I'd like you to know that I am getting some help. And so that I think is is the way it should work. We've got to be more open about these conversations, even though they're difficult conversations. I want to stress, and I'm sure you're the first to agree that what's worked or not worked for you isn't the same for everyone by any means. Everyone's got their own path in or out of these these situations. But you're now the main figure in this new documentary I mentioned called The Promise, which focuses on your story and your recovery. Uh, And the act of talking about this and presenting your own story is like holding it in your hand after a while. And does it give you like that kind of insight, insight and a certain degree of control if you're able to tell your story as like this thing you can hold in your hand and, and curate, mm. Craig? I'd much prefer to be telling my story publicly myself rather than have someone else try to tell it for me because they'll put their own nuances on it, which is only normal, and their own, you know, viewpoint. So I'd... I'm happy with the documentary. I hope it's going to make a difference. You've just very recently finished up at the ABC after 25 years on air. What was that like doing the last shift? And I say this knowing fully well what a community Newcastle is hmm. and how there, there might have been a little bit of buzz around you at the time and a lot of interest and, and a fair bit of love and uh, hugs and kisses as well. What was that like, that last shift? Well, the first part of the shift was pretty much normal, actually. It was a six-hour breakfast show. It was a long shift up there. Six-hour breakfast show? Six hours. Six hours, yeah. Piece of cake. Six till midday. So, But from 11 till 12, my colleagues had put together, you know, a fantastic package. There were bloopers. There were messages. Hey, I got a message from Peter Garrett. I mean, that's pretty cool. I had a message from Wayne Bennett, which yeah. is also Yeah, he's a friend good. of yours, isn't he, Wayne Bennett? Yeah, yeah. We, we have known each other for a long time. So, And then, the, of course, I got emotional because I said goodbye and thanked everybody and thanked the audience and family and friends and colleagues. And then because there's a sense of finality about it. So I did get emotional. I knew I would, and that's fine. Craig, it's been wonderful speaking with you, and thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Craig Hamilton's story is the centre of a new documentary called the promise. And if this conversation has been difficult for you to hear, please know that help and support is available for you at Lifeline. You can call them anytime 13 11 14. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. 
For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.